Well, friends, it's so good to be back together. As Brenda mentioned, uh, just not like we are, we are designed to, to, to gather weekly and beyond that, but certainly weekly. And it, it definitely felt like a, the time uh, sort of was collapsing in on itself the last couple of weeks as we were, you know, very understandably not together. But it's so good to be back together. I'm so expectant for what God has for us as a community and for you individually this year. And, uh, you know, so much of that is as we turn to a new teaching series uh, that we're starting today on faith. And, um, you know, from the earliest accounts of Christian baptism, we start to get a sense for what it meant for the earliest Christians to believe in Jesus. You know, so the descriptions go, for, the, for those being baptized, they would fast all day leading into the night, and then they would hold vigil all the night before. Often this was done on Easter Sunday. And as the dawn was starting to creep in, one of the leaders in the church would come and lead the person who was wanting to be baptized after a long process where they had been confirmed, where they had heard the apostles' teaching. And they would be led down to the river, a place with flowing, moving, living water. And they would take off their outer garments. There was no shame, there was nothing, nothing strange there, but it was just a place where it was acknowledging that everything that had come before, everything that had defined one's life beforehand was now no more. That now there would be a new designation. And they would climb down into the water, being greeted by one of the leaders in the church. And that leader would ask them, do you believe in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth? And the person being baptized would say, I believe. And they would be dunked under the water. And then as they were still gasping for breath, the leader in the church would ask them another question. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his son, who was made incarnate by the Virgin Mary, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, who was dead and buried, was raised on the third day, was ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father? He says, yes, I believe. Again, under the water. And then a third time, as the one being baptized would come out of the water, do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting? Yes, I believe. Again, underneath the water. It's an intense ceremony. And for people coming to faith in the earliest church, Oftentimes that intensity was undertaken because to be a Christian was no easy matter. To undergo this kind of transformation in life was not just adopting a new faith. You couldn't just show up to a nice church with comfy chairs and nice coffee and nice people to greet you at the door. It was an acknowledgement that you were signing up for a battle. That you were putting yourself squarely in the middle of a conflict between the forces of this world and the forces of the kingdom of heaven. And so, patiently, slowly, the church would make sure that you meant what you were saying. That you knew what you were signing up for. You know, a lot of times when I do uh, wedding ceremonies, I have this acknowledgement, you know, with the people that are undergoing the ceremony, as they're preparing for marriage, I'll say, listen, you're about to make promises and you have no idea what you're promising. You have no idea what you're signing up for because you can't know. But in some way, the preparation, the preparation in prayer, the preparation in wisdom is preparing you to stand and to hold fast. 
And as we start a new series on faith, as we look at this earliest account, and we look at what it often means when we talk about what it means for us to believe, what it means for us to have faith, for them we can start to get a glimpse of the earliest Christians that faith wasn't simply a matter of signing up to some intellectual propositions, but it was about immersing your whole life in the way of Jesus. And we sort of map this culture's approach to faith with our own culture's approach to faith. We start fast forward into our own day and we start to examine what does it mean to have faith or how is faith viewed in our culture? Friedrich Nietzsche says of faith, he says, faith is always coveted most and needed most urgently where will is lacking. For will as the effect of command is the decisive sign of sovereignty and strength. For fanaticism is the only strength of will that even the weak and insecure can be brought to attain. Being a sort of hypnotism of the whole system. This which the Christian calls his faith. Once a human being reaches the fundamental conviction that he must be commanded, he becomes a believer. For Nietzsche, faith is a crutch, a weakness. It is something that only the weak need. And in Nietzsche's construct of the world, the weak are being bypassed. It's the strong who will survive. It's those who have the strength of will that will carry the day. And the most flamboyant atheists, people like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, attract much of the buzz with their bombastic statements about faith in God. Look at what Richard Dawkins says about being an atheist. He says, an atheist, in this sense of philosophical naturalist, is somebody who believes, interesting that he has to use that word, there is nothing beyond the natural, physical world. No supernatural creative intelligence lurking behind the observable universe. No soul that outlasts the body. No miracles, except in the sense of natural phenomena that we don't yet understand. And so for Nietzsche, faith is weakness. For Dawkins, faith is delusion. His book is called The God Delusion. And in Dawkins' account of the world, there is no mystery. Nothing unknown that will not someday be observed by human senses and human minds. No spirit, no soul, no transcendence. Isn't it interesting, as Dawkins uses the language of belief, as Dawkins so confidently ascribes that which is not possible in our world, he sounds less like somebody who's humble and open and exploring and more like a religious fundamentalist. More like somebody who has seen the way the world works and has just said confidently that this is the only thing that can be. Lacks humility. And the secularization theory, the, thing, the, the theory that things would get more secular as we come to know more, adopted by people like Richard Dawkins, Steven Pinker, essentially says that people used to believe in gods and demons and fairies and monsters, but now scientific discovery has identified natural processes as causes for all those things that we used to label as such. So we no longer have need for these kind of unseen forces. Charles Taylor calls this secularity too. And certainly vestiges of this remain. And the, uh, the hypothesis goes, as we start to understand more about the world, that we have less use for God or malevolent forces in the world that used to, used to be so much a part of the discourse. But Charles Taylor also describes something he calls secularity three, which is a belief in a space where belief of any sort is a contested space. And this, to me, much better describes our day 
we live in a marketplace of ideas. Everybody has their own perspective, their own posture. And this makes way for the possibility of an exclusive humanism, a vision of life where there is no, absolutely nothing beyond what is imminent. This is what Charles Taylor calls the disenchanted world. That if you think back 500 years ago, people had this perception that their life was a part of a wider cosmos where there were unseen forces at play. And now we have this sense that those things have been sucked out of the universe. That now all we can see is that which is in front of us. And he notes how the center of meaning in a disenchanted world shifts from the world to the mind. The world is not the place where things are unfolding, but it's in our minds that we define meaning. It's interesting as we look at this, because when we look on the ground, I think what we see is something quite different. David Foster Wallace says of people like Richard Dawkins, he says, what passes for atheism in our day is a kind of anti-religious religion, which worships reason, skepticism, intellect, proof, human autonomy, and self-determination. Now again, the secularization theory tells us that as we discover more about the world, then we have less use for God. But when you look at how people actually live their lives, when you look at how people actually exist in the world, what you find is that God has not so easily been excised from the world, that the rumors of God's death are greatly exaggerated. Tara Isabella Burton in her insightful book, Strange Rites, acknowledges the significant fragmenting and lessening of the dominant religious traditions in the United States. She writes, back in 2007, 15% of Americans called themselves religiously unaffiliated, what we've come to call the nuns, meaning that they didn't consider themselves to be members of any traditional organized religion. By 2012, that number had risen to 20% and to 30% when it came to adults under 30. Now, those numbers are still higher. About a quarter of American adults say they have no religion. And when you look at young millennials, those born after 1990, those numbers reach 40%. So, essentially, 25% of American adults have no identifiable religion. But, when you dig into their beliefs of that group, of the 25% of people who say they have no religion, 72% of those people believe in a higher power of some sort. So it's like, okay, we've put away the institutional religion, but this God-haunted thing, these echoes of enchantment still meet us on the ground. And this is vastly different from the perspective of somebody like Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is saying faith is a delusion. But what we find in the actual practice of people, even people that don't claim any religion, is that there's still some faith that's creeping in there quite often. Tara Isabella Burton calls these folks the remixed. And it's a beautiful dis description of our culture. It's sort of a hybrid consumerist religion that pulls a la carte from different trends or traditions. How many Christians do we know? How many of us have been in this place where we come up against something about God that we find creates friction for us? And we're like, I, I don't like that. I'm just going to push that aside, right? And friends, can I just tell you? Can I just urge you, and I'm just speaking from my own experience, when those things happen, and they happen for me, I'm, I'm not a fundamentalist, I, I, I dig into this stuff, and I try to read this stuff well, when those kind of tensions are created for me, I find that that's an invitation from God to wrestle. 
to dig into what the church has said historically, to what people have s- uh, settled with the scriptures and wrestled with them. And so often I find that people that want to be faithful to Jesus just bypass this process altogether. And they find some person on YouTube is going to tell them why none of that is true. And YouTube can be right sometimes. But, but the invitation to wrestle is the invitation to the life that God has for you. You're going to come up, uh, you're going to read the scriptures. They are not abundantly clear. They're written in a different culture, in a different language, at a different time. And that's just the start of it. And so you're going to find things sometimes that are not just completely copacetic with how you see the world, especially how we as 21st century Americans see the world, for those of us whom that defines. Don't bypass the process to wrestle. Otherwise, you'll just be pulling things off the shelf. Like, I like this about Jesus. I like this about God. I don't like this about all those other things. And so for, for so many of us Christians, we mimic the patterns of society that just pulls religion a la carte, and there's something so much better. Tara Isabella Burton talks about another Pew poll, just to give you an example of this, where religiously unaffiliated people were surveyed about New Age beliefs. And she just kind of lists some of those. Things like astrology, reincarnation, psychics, and spiritual energy located in physical objects. She says about 60% of the nuns, the religiously unaffiliated, believed in at least one of those phenomena. But here's what's striking. Almost an identical percentage of Christians believed in those things. In fact, 29% of Christians surveyed in this Pew survey believed in reincarnation, which, friends, is not a Christian belief. We are people of the resurrection. We're not reincarnation. And so what she found was that Christians were just kind of pulling at something that they could hold on to. So what we want to look at is, what does it mean to live as people of faith? You probably saw last week, if you were watching Monday Night Football, as DeMar Hamlin had a cardiac event as during the game. And the game stopped, and immediately the players on his team, the people in the stands, began to pray. I even saw uh, ESPN studio analysts. I, I've watched sports my entire life. Uh, I've never seen a studio analyst pray on live air and praying over this young man. We live in a God-haunted culture. And again, as much as the story would say that as we discover more about the world, then we'll have less use for God, what we find is that people are wired for the transcendent. We are wired for something more. And so we have to, as we sort of mapped out this kind of, this tension between a world where people are being immersed into this new story and a world where we're still kind of struggling with the language of faith, we have to ask ourselves the question here today, What does it mean to have faith in Jesus? And why does it matter? Now, if you read throughout the Gospels, there are a few things that frustrate Jesus. Again, talk about like maybe the friction between how we see Jesus and how he actually is. Sometimes Jesus gets annoyed. And one of the things that we find that frustrates Jesus is a lack of faith. Five times throughout Matthew's Gospel, Jesus refers to those closest to him as the little faith ones. It's just like, it's like you have little, little faith. In Matthew 17, a desperate father brings his son to Jesus to cure him of demonic possession that gives the child epilepsy and throws him into the fire. And as he brings him to Jesus, he says, I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. <laughs> his disciples got to be like, thanks. Thanks for blowing our spot here, man. 
Jesus' response is striking and telling. He says, you faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. It says in verse 18, and Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was cured from that moment. Then later, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now friends, I don't know who you relate to in this story, but for me it's not Jesus. It's not me looking around at all of you or anybody in my house and be like, you have little faith. How much longer do I have to put up with you? I identify with the disciples, right? I'm, I'm sitting there like, Lord, I, I want to believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Lord, I, I want to have faith that can move mountains, but oftentimes it doesn't seem like I can move myself across the room. So what do we do? What does it mean to have faith in Jesus? And I think Jesus here, especially in Matthew 17, is especially frustrated because if you read the actual chapter of Matthew 17, the story that directly precedes this episode where the disciples did not have enough faith to cast out this demon was the story of the transfiguration. One of the few times in the New Testament we see Jesus unveiled in glory. At least Peter, James, and John had been with Jesus in this space. They had seen Jesus glorified. They had heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my son. And yet still immediately after, they don't have enough faith to work in his name. Conversely, when Jesus finds faith, especially in surprising places, he is delighted. Matthew 15, a Canaanite woman, a centurion in Matthew 8. These people represent those who were thought to be outside of the people of God, outside of the covenant people of God. And yet Jesus, as he finds faith, as he finds something that centers in on him, is finding that there is a story that is being written amongst those who may have been told that they were outside of the covenant. The writer of Hebrews tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Paul, quoting the prophet Habakkuk in Romans 1, verse 17, says, The righteous shall live by faith. Paul does not envision faith as a nice add-on to our lives. You know, a nice, a nice benefit to make you a better person, makes you nicer, makes you kinder. Paul does not envision faith as some sort of leisurely activity for us to explore when we have time. He says it is the literal air that we breathe, the food for our nourishment. The righteous will live by faith. And so friends, as I'm bringing all this to a head like this morning, as I'm sort of just laying out the landscape, what I want to start with is like we want to start with this posture of we need this, this approach to God, we need to have this kind of life with God. We need faith. And I, I say we. <laughs> we need God to move. We need God to do more than we can do for ourselves. So what is faith and what is it not? First, a couple things that faith is not. Faith in Jesus is not merely an opinion. The gospel of Jesus. The good news that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises given to people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Moses. The good news that Jesus, God in the flesh, became one of us. That he was born during the reign of the emperor Augustus. 
that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. All of these are declaring, they're, they're proclaiming to tell the story of the world and the way that events have transpired. They're not saying this is our opinion about what has happened. They're saying these are the things that have happened. These are the events that have taken place. And then they go on to say that he was dead and buried. And on the third day, he was raised again. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. These are not claiming to be uh, theological propositions. These are claiming to be a record of the events of history. Now, they could be untrue. They could be lies. They could be wrong. But they are not allowed to be propositions they're saying that this is an account of the story of the world we hold these things with humility we hold them with the sense of okay what god what are you trying to show us here but we have to see the 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 claims of the gospel of jesus are not opinions paul says it well in second corinthians 5 verses 6 or 7 he says so we are always confident But he's saying, we're not confident in ourselves. We're not confident in our apprehension of the fact, but we're confident. Because we know the Lord. And that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We walk by faith and not by sight. So faith is not merely an opinion. It is a tradition that we've received about events that have transpired. And again, that then opens up into a lot of discussion, a lot of wrestling. But the gospel story itself is purporting to be an accounting of the world, the way it is, and where it's going. And thus is an accounting of us as people and what it means for God to come to us. Faith in Jesus is not simply a doctrine. We live in a pluralistic world that tells us we can believe whatever we want in our mind as long as we keep it to ourselves. Like, believe what you want, just don't, don't impose that upon anybody else. But can I tell you this? The earliest Christians' friends were not persecuted because they had some unorthodox beliefs about God and were just living nice little quiet lives. They were persecuted because they were living as embodiments of what they claimed, that Jesus is Lord, thus Caesar is not. They were living as embodiments in such a way that it inverted the structures of their society. That though they were not oppressive in the way they told the story, though they were not uh, overly confident in the way they told the story, they told it with humility, they told it with love, but they told it faithfully. And in that telling, they found friction with the way the world was oriented. The third century bishop Cyprian wrote, Beloved brethren, we are philosophers not in words, but in deeds. We exhibit our wisdom not by our dress, but by truth. We know virtues by their practice rather than through boasting of them. We do not speak great things, but we live them. How many of you may have been raised in a religious tradition that just either explicitly or implicitly told you that if you just had the right beliefs about God, it didn't actually matter how you treated people. It didn't actually matter how you acted in the world, that as long as you believed the right things in some sort of cognitive way, It didn't matter what you did with your hands, with your body. This is not the faith of Jesus. Faith is not simply doctrine. Faith is not simply an intellectual proposition. Faith is something beyond that. Lastly, one more thing that faith is not for today. Faith is not passive. 
Again, Nietzsche has this subtle dig that, you know, there's the real world run by the real people. And then there's those weak faithlings over here. Walter Brueggemann says, faith concerns attentive engagement in a promissory relationship. Trust is a practice that entails obedience to Torah. Israel's fidelity to Yahweh, not unlike fidelity in marriage, thus consists of concrete acts that take the other party with defining seriousness. I love what Hudson Taylor says. He says, all God's giants were weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. And faith is trying to integrate our lives. Faith is trying to enable us to live wholly in the world, to live as integrated people that don't have a faith over here, a political persuasion over here, a vocation over here, a family life over here, a way we approach money over here, but a way that is integrated by the love and the reign of Jesus. And faith is not passive. It will often look passive. This is what Paul talks about constantly in Corinthians. He says, you want me to be strong and yet I am weak. He says, you want me to come with eloquence. You want me to come with the world's wisdom and yet I come with nothing other than the wisdom of the cross. Faith will often look like losing. It will look like we are sitting on our hands praying when the world is happening. And yet, faith says that we have access to the one who made the world. And so we start there. We start in that place of putting ourselves at his feet, of crying out to God. Much has been made of the dividing line between faith and works. Now anything that looks like a work is a misguided attempt to, at self-salvation, places like Galatians. But Paul in Galatians is not saying that anything we do in response to God's grace is somehow a work. Paul is talking to a specific group of people People who in Galatians would have thought that by keeping the law, they were telling the world that they were a part of the covenant people. And he's saying, no longer is it about keeping the law, now it's about faith. Now it's about centering your trust, your obedience, your action upon the person of Jesus. And for the people Paul was talking to, for Paul himself, this was a paradigm shift. And so we don't need to be overly anxious about this tension between faith and works. When we center our faith upon Jesus, Dallas Willard says that faith is not opposed to effort. As she says, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. So we've been given this gift. And that's as we start to turn. So what is faith? Faith is a gift from God. And it's not a gift that God has given to some people and not to others. Faith is a gift that because Jesus has come to us, has been opened up into the entire world. Jesus is the gift that gives us the model of faith. But he not only gives us the model. Now, just imagine with me, if Michael Jordan were to walk in, the greatest basketball player who has ever walked the face of the earth. That is undebatable. And he were to say, Ian, I hear you want to dunk a basketball. Yes, Michael Jordan, that is true. Just do what I do. Okay, right on, right on. Six foot six, you know, Michael Jordan in his prime. You know, just, just rewind 25 years ago. Six foot six, 240 pounds. It's like, just do what I do. It's like, okay, right on. Like, there is no amount of instruction that Michael Jordan is going to give me where it's like, actually, I can do this now. I believe I can fly. Like, it's just not going to happen. 
And so, so often we treat Jesus, especially when it comes to faith, as this model. But Jesus is more than a model. He is a model, but he is not less than that. It would be as if Michael Jordan could give me his ability to dunk a basketball, which I think is the plot of Space Jam. Jesus not only is a model, he empowers us to do as he did. And so faith is a gift. And it's not a gift that God holds in reserve. Again, God does not, God is not this curmudgeon who like grumpily and very uh, scarcely gives out grace. God lavishes his grace upon us. And as we say, God, give us faith. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. He will give us more faith. But it is a gift from God. Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit to live as he did. The great passages of the Reformation, Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, we are justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Friends, we are the people of a gift. Grace and faith are always intertwined in such a powerful way that God gives himself to us. And Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit to redeem and restore our heart and our mind and our will towards God. Now, I want to put up this chart for you because I think it will be helpful. Faith, when it's used in the New Testament, evokes a spectrum. Again, we tend to think because we are children of the modernity, children of the Cartesian, I think, therefore I am. When we think of faith, we think of belief. But when faith is used in the New Testament, it evokes a wide spectrum of different meanings. And just the way I want to illustrate this is all of this is done under the umbrella of loving trust. That faith, first and foremost, is about a relationship, a relatedness to God. And it's out of that that we begin to see rightly that our beliefs are formed and shaped by his love for us, that our perception, our knowledge, our wisdom, but also that we engage actively, that we bend our wills to what God would have for us, that we invoke allegiance to Jesus and nothing else. Faith, when used in the New Testament, is evoking this kind of wide range picture and God wants to renew us. You know, Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And this is what God is wanting to do in our midst. He's wanting to redeem and restore. He restores our mind. Hebrews 11, verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. He restores our will. Paul in Romans 1 says that he is teaching us so that he would bring about the obedience of faith. He restores our hearts. I love this phrase, orthopathos, from Amelia Valentin. He says, for now we see only, or uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, for now we see only as in a mirror, but then we will see face to face. Now I only have in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love remain. These three, and the greatest of these is love. So God is wanting to give us the gift of faith so that he can renew and restore us. And all of this, all of this starts with Jesus. Hebrews 12, verse 2, coming on the tail of the great faith chapter in Hebrews 11. 
says that we look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus on the cross utters the words that are paradigmatic for us as people of faith. He says, Father, as he's being crucified, as he's having to completely trust in the love of the Father, he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And this is the call of faith for us to wholly trust God, for us to wholly live in light of what he has done, for us to give our heart, our will, our mind, our soul, and our strength in love to God, in service to neighbor. This is the call that Jesus has for us. Elizabeth Actemeyer, reflecting on the fact that the righteous will live by faith. She says, Habakkuk, where this passage is quoted from, makes the affirmation that the relationship with God is fulfilled by faithfulness. That does not mean moral steadfastness, rectitude, and earnestness. It does not signify the proper performance of ethical or cultic duties. Rather, faithfulness here means trust, dependence, clinging to God. It means living and moving and having one's being in Him alone. It means relying upon Him for the breath one draws, for the direction one takes, for the decisions one makes, for the goals one sets, and for the outcome of one's living. Faithfulness means placing one's whole life in God's hands and trusting Him to fulfill it. Despite all outward and inward circumstances, despite all personal sin and guilt, despite all psychological and social and physical distortions, Faithfulness is life by God's power rather than by one's own. And there it is truly life because it draws its vitality from the living God who is the source of life. I'm going to invite Patrick and Laura to come back as we approach the table this morning. And friends, as we've sort of surveyed the landscape of faith, And as, as the pastor of this community, as we sort of sit at this threshold point in our life together, I simply am just crying out for more. For more faith for me, for more faith for our team, for more faith in our midst. Not because it's something that we can conjure up. And again, we've seen all the things that faith is not. But because it is our very life that as we are called out by God, that we truly live by faith, that we truly orient the whole of our lives around the person of Jesus, that fixing our eyes upon him, the author and perfecter of our faith, we find life and peace, we find wholeness, we find meaning, we find all that which we've been searching for. And so as we come, as we begin this series, as we begin this new year, I simply want to invite you to join with me that cry and again there's a spectrum maybe you've been walking with God for a while maybe things have grown dry you're saying Lord I need I need you as in a dry and weary land God, I thirst for you perhaps you have no perception of how deeply God loves you of how this faith that we proclaim is about a Savior who has come to give himself for you in love, who has come to draw you to himself, to give you his peace. Wherever you find yourself on that spectrum today, somewhere in between, I simply want to invite you this morning to cry out and say, God, give me faith. And that faith could be saving faith. That faith could be deepening faith. 
but God wants to meet with you. And it, for me, as, as a preacher, as somebody who comes through this moment, it is the most faithful thing that I proclaim. Because I am not naive to think that my words can move you to change your life, but I am just foolish enough to believe that God's grace will meet us here because His Holy Spirit is present here and that that changes everything. So we come to this table each week. And as we come and we receive from this table, as we receive the grace of Jesus' body broken for us, His blood poured out for us, we come in faith that God has more for us than we have for ourselves, that there is more going on than meets the eye. On the night Jesus was arrested, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. blessed he said this is my blood poured out for the sins of the world that as often as we eat and as often as we drink we declare his life his death his resurrection until he comes again we're going to invite our communion service to come forward take the elements in just a moment you'll be invited to come to the table as well Mal will tell you when to go she'll be in the center aisle inviting your row to go and you can come and you can take tear from the bread, dip in the cup, or there's also gluten-free crackers if you need gluten-free. But friends, as you come, would you just hold that prayer in your spirit? Would you say, God, give me faith. Lord, meet me here. And I believe he will do it.